We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, so this is uh, an extension of what we've been talking about in the uh, evening services uh, this summer. Uh, we're doing a series on the Christian and modern culture. And I want to do a little bit of a review before we uh, look into, um, before we look into uh, the, the material for this evening. Um, the... It's hard to multitask here, so so sorry. Uh, we started off really with Pastor Kent's message on holiness and how uh, it's the responsibility of the believer to have his focus be on the holiness of God. And that um, while we live in a culture that is constantly changing, that is constantly in flux, our focal point ought to be God. And that being said... Um, we do understand that in order to know God, we must delight in him. And in order to delight in him, we must delight in his word. And so we continue to progress in our knowledge of God so that we might be like him. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16 says that he um, that has called you, he who has called you is holy. So be holy in all manner of lifestyle, all manner of conversation, as it is written be holy for I am holy. And in our modern culture, a lot of times if we do a word comparison or a word association game, we don't use holiness associated with modern culture. In fact, often we can do the exact opposite where we have perhaps ungodliness or worldliness in the context of modern culture. Now, that being said, does modern culture always equal ungodliness, to which we would say, no, it doesn't. There are aspects of our culture that model or reflect God's image or common grace. Man is made in God's image, and so as a result of being made in God's image, he can, even in an unredeemed uh, situation, he can reflect in some ways how God has made him. Um, and so that's what our modern culture often does. Uh, we use two examples, kind of, uh, kind of goofy. Last time uh, we were with each other, this was at the end of um, this was this was uh, uh, the last time I spoke, where I showed the advertisement of the Winston cigarettes and and the pregnant woman uh, smoking and, and smoking for two, and and clearly we've seen a progression in the last 50 to 60 years in regards to even something like that. Um, we, we, I used an example also of a photograph of, of young girls and modeling clothing and the trends that seem to be moving away at some level from the hypersexualization. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, argument about that, but, but how uh, beauty is uh, uh, one of those words that, that can be defined very narrowly and sometimes in an unhealthy way. And our culture is recognizing the effects of the hypersexualized approach to women. And in fact, sometimes, uh, in, in some circumstances, is doing just that uh, to, to combat that. So all that to say, um, when we look at modern culture, we have um, kind of a conundrum in the sense that we, um, we have some elements that are clearly anti-biblical, but then we also have some elements that are a little bit more foggy. But then when we throw modern culture into the mix of the local church, 
Then what you have is a lot of cloudiness, maybe if I can put it that way, uh, especially on the heels of Pastor Tim's sermon this morning, where we know that as believers, we're not underneath the law. We're not bound by the law. In fact, we've died to the law. And so we don't use the law as a system of rules simply to conform the outward person to some level of Christianity. So that being said, I'm ready to go. All right. I think we're good, Nick. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. I said 90 seconds, 45 seconds. That was like four minutes and 45 seconds. So what we're going to talk about tonight is the practical application of the Christian and modern culture, in particular when modern culture comes to Grace Church of Mentor. Now that might sound kind of funny because it almost sounds like we have, when you walk through the doors of Grace Church of Mentor, you've walked into this time warp where things are all of a sudden old-fashioned and things are somewhat backwards and wonky and anti-technological and as given evidence by my lack of ability to construct technology in an effective way. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. When we have a local church comprised of believers, because that's what the church is. It's made up of believers. Believers celebrate the Lord's table. When we have the local church comprised of believers, and you have modern culture introduced into the church, not necessarily by leadership, but by discipleship and evangelism. What do we do? So if we were to take a poll here of the people in this room, those who know Christ as their Savior, there are varying degrees of spiritual age. There are varying levels of spiritual maturity. And the fact is all of us are affected in some way, shape, or form by modern culture. And so varying levels and degrees of spiritual maturity are going to reflect discernment in different ways. And the last thing that I want you to take from this, this is really important, the last thing I want you to take from this is that once you mature, then you'll agree with me. Because at times it can come across that way. When you talk about varying levels of spiritual growth and maturity, it's like, well, as you grow in the Lord and as you study the Bible, you're going to be able to understand and have more discernment. It, but, but really, when you read between the lines, you know, what the person takes away from it is, yeah, and then I'll agree with where you came to, the, the conclusion that you came to. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm talking about tonight here is how maturing believers relate to maturing believers in the context of the local church when modern culture is naturally brought into play. Okay? So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for discernment as we study His Word. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for uh, the promise that your word is complete, that we lack nothing. Lord, give us discernment, especially when it comes to application of principles. Lord, often it's easy to read texts of Scripture and see very clearly and plainly what the Bible says. But when it comes to applying them, Lord, some things um, become complex as we look at specific situations. So God, may we be grace-filled hearers and doers. Give us patience and love as we interact with other believers. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just as a review, we talked about Pastor Kent's uh, message uh, several weeks ago, how we are to consume a knowledge of God and not culture. And then after that, we uh, last, the last time that I was with you, we compared culture and the world. Where culture
culture is a set of patterns and th of thought, communication, and behavior shared by a group of people living together as a society. And that's different than the world. The Bible condemns the world in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says that it has the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So when we think of the world, we're not talking about terra firma. We're not talking about climate patterns. Nor are we really talking about um, so much uh, just the universe, the created universe. What we're talking about is the unbelieving in all generations who demonstrate their lost condition and their separation from God by developing and pursuing values that are in direct opposition to his holy character and as revealed in the Bible. So I kind of put a little grid together here, uh, just a, a little continuum of where we would measure things. This isn't scripture per se, but it's a little helpful chart. What you have is you have godliness on one side and evil on the other. And in the middle you have neutral or neutrality. And where we would put culture is somewhere uh, bent towards evil, but not explicitly evil. And the reason why we have it bent towards evil is because culture is always made up of sinners. And sinners sin. And their culture will always reflect varying degrees of sinfulness. That's why that, that arrow is kind of tilted a little bit, because it's always bending towards the world. Now, the world itself is evil. Okay, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And then we talked about modern culture or pop culture. Okay, they're not necessarily synonymous, but we often have contemporary culture promoted by various forms of media, often but not always appealing to sinful lusts. And so if we're moving, if we're, if we're looking on this kind of uh, line, we see that, that popular culture has a greater bent towards evil. It's closer to, but not necessarily evil. And so, again, I'm not giving you the whole sermon that I gave the last time. Please check it out on uh, Grace Church's website. You could also check it out on our Facebook page as well. And some of the concluding thoughts that we made was that we must be patient with cultural transitions. It isn't our job to convince someone that something is not worldly, even if it was worldly several decades ago. We talked about the principle of association and how in a body of believers, there can be aspects of modern culture that have strong associations. Strong associations with things that are good, strong associations that, with things that are not good. And you think about what is popular or what is part of our modern culture, and those associations can differ from person to person, okay? So for example, um, we had an organ playing in the uh, communion service and as part of our service. Okay. So there was at one point in time, this was over 10 years ago, there was a, a couple that came in and they heard the organ and they immediately associated the organ with their uh, Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints uh, experience in the past. Now, I've never been in a Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints service, but they have, they were saved out of it, and so they, when they heard the organ, they immediately associated with it. You might not, but they did. Okay. Um, and, and, and we can just go on and on. All that to say, there are going to be cultural association. I'm not saying it's a good association, I'm not saying it's a bad association, it just kinda is what it is. And for some, those associations are very strong. And the ties are very strong. And as we look through scripture, last time we were here, we said that it isn't our job to convince someone that something is not worldly. 
Rather, we must defer to the weaker brother when our decisions will influence his walk with the Lord. And we must be gracious with those believers who differ from us, recognizing that we still, too, are growing in our spiritual works and progress. Those three points of uh, application are really what we're going to hone in on tonight. So, how do we relate tonight? This is where we start for this evening. How do we relate to believers Okay, that's a key word. How do we relate to believers who are embracing aspects of modern culture that we believe are worldly? How do we relate to believers who are embracing aspects of modern culture that we believe are worldly? Part of the reality of the New Testament church is the influence of modern culture among the church members. And no New Testament church illustrates this better than Corinth. Okay? When you think of Corinth, the church in Corinth, the issues that Paul addressed, some were sinful, some were cultural. He talked about personal favoritism. He talked about divisions within the church. He talked about his right to be paid for services. He talked about abuses of Christian liberty. And people going to the meat market, purchasing meat that had been offered to idols. And the, the, the conflict that, that that stirred up in the church. He talked about whether or not divorce is appropriate and the circumstances that divorce is appropriate. He talked about women and how they were to be clothed in the church. I mean, their actual clothing. He talked about the use of spiritual gifts. He talked about the abuse of the Lord's table. He talked about questionable theology that some of them were wrestling with. I mean, even going so far as questioning the legitimacy of the resurrection. Paul addressed a lot of issues, not to mention some of the bigger issues, like incest in the church, sexual immorality that was going on in the church. Okay? So if there was modern culture that was playing a part in the lives of church members, believing church members, maybe Corinth is where we ought to go to look at the example. So I have, for, I had you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to start off with a few 21st century examples, possible scenarios. I hope that's big enough for you to read. If it's not, I'll read it for you, okay? Possible scenarios where you might be confronted, or you might be challenged, or you just might be exposed to modern culture within other believers here at Grace Church Manor. Okay? All right, while scanning your Facebook feed, scenario number one, you notice that a Grace Church Manor family has posted pictures from their vacation, and there are several that make you feel uncomfortable. You believe that their behavior in those pictures could hurt their testimony for Jesus Christ. Scenario number two, you invite a couple over from, you, you invite a couple from church over to your home for dinner. They just moved into the area and are looking to make Grace Church their church home. In the context of your conversation, you learn that they're not even married, but they are living together. Scenario number three, perhaps a girl in the youth group who's been coming to Grace Church and Mentor for close to a year and is consistently dressed immodestly. Your son is in the youth group and you're concerned about your son's ability to resist sexual temptation. All three of these scenarios have actually taken place here at Grace Church of Mentor since I've been here. And guess what? Our church is still standing and pretty unified. So you know what that tells me? 
we're doing, to, the praise of the, uh, to, to praise the Lord, I think we're doing a pretty good job of growing in this area and, and progressing in this area. The last time I checked, we haven't had any church splits over any type of these scenarios. Praise the Lord, okay? But we do need to make sure that we understand how to live wisely and skillfully in situations not necessarily identical like this, but like this. Do you see how modern culture has played into each scenario, some with greater degree or some to a greater degree than others? Okay. Now, I had you look at 1 Corinthians 1. That's really, really important. Let's go back real quick. Remember all of the abuses of the Corinthian church that we kind of talked about and that we mentioned? Remember all the situations and, and issues that, that Paul was dealing with? Now I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is really, in my opinion, this is really exciting. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to read the first nine verses. Okay? Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, before I, I presented this on the, the, before I put the slideshow together, I was half tempted to just put verses 1 through 9 on a slide for you all to read and omit the Corinthians. And just have you guess which church this description applied to. Because when you think of all of the nonsense that was going on in the Corinthian church, I don't think that we would naturally tie Paul's description of those church members to that church. Look at how Paul describes them. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, verse 2. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you. Said that about the Corinthians. He says, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, in verse 5. He says, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, he says in verse 6. In verse 7, he says, you are not lacking in any gift. Verses 7 and 8, you are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how Paul thought of the Corinthian believers. And that's how Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to think of themselves. Was he simply trying to boost their self-esteem? 
Was he trying to get them to somehow forget about, you know, the struggles or the conflicts and just really focus on the good? You know, focus on the good, don't focus on the bad, you'll be okay. Is that what he was doing? No. For Paul, positional truth always guided his approach when he ministered to struggling saints and it would provide a basis for hope that they would grow in Christ-likeness. Okay? Positional truth. You say, okay, that term gets thrown around here sometimes. It's, it's truth that is true. It's redundant. It's truth that is because it's not dependent on external circumstances, meaning it's true because it is true in essence. So Paul is talking about positional truth of these Corinthian believers. Now, mind you, this isn't license for sin. Nor is it Paul's endorsement of a lawless, completely free from any type of sanctified spiritual life. All we have to do is look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 to know that that's not the case. Why? Because Paul says, what? Shall we continue in sin so that grace will abound? God forbid. Absolutely not. What Paul is saying, though, is that there is something true about them. Even though it would have been easy for Paul to be overwhelmed by the amount of sin in the church and the degree of the sin in the church. Yet, how does he begin his letter to them? By reminding them of who they are in Jesus Christ. So what Paul was doing was looking at them through God's eyes. How would God look at these saints? Okay, And there's something about our human experience that struggles with the reality that we can never gain any more favor with God than what we already have in Him. All right? We are, you have been made complete in Him. You have all of the favor in God's eyes based on what Jesus Christ has done in you. And it's easy from a human experience to look at less mature, at least in your estimation, less mature believers and see them as less favorable in God's eyes and you as more favorable in God's eyes. And that is not gracious at all. At all. What Paul is saying is, this is who you are. This is the way God looks at you. Now, that doesn't mean that the issues get left unaddressed. I mean, there still is another, what, 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians? We read the first nine verses. Verse 10, he starts to get down to business. But there is the first nine verses, and they can't be overlooked. Okay? All right, so getting back to our scenarios, just from a practical consideration. I should have made this font bigger. I'm sorry. But just practical questions. As we relate... To believers, actually, let's go back to this question here. How do we relate to believers who are embracing aspects of modern culture that we believe are worldly? Okay, so we're going to try to answer that question. Okay? First of all, when we see these believers, 
do we know these people at all? Okay? When we're confronted with this, do we know their names? I think it's a good question to start with. Okay? I've seen this. I'm really troubled by it. Or I've heard this. Do I even know their names? Second of all, are they believers? I think it's a great question to ask. Do I, do I know whether or not they're born again? Because guess what? There can be unbelievers that come to Grace Church and Mentor pretty regularly. And if they're unbelievers and they're acting like unbelievers, should we be surprised? Third question. If they are saved, what is their spiritual progress up to this point? I think a follow-up question would be, would you be willing to start a Bible study with them? And the question, when we ask, what's their spiritual progress up to this point? Really what it does is it kind of goes to the heart of our motives when we see believers embracing aspects of modern culture that we feel are worldly. Here's why it goes to the heart of the matter. Because what we learn very fast is whether or not we want that person to grow or we want that problem to go away. And there's a big difference. Okay, so I taught for 10 years. And, and um, in the classroom setting, there were times where you had students that frankly just weren't excited and you know, in, you know, just really zealous for learning what I had to teach. And I can't imagine you know, science. Um, and so as they, they, they progressed through the school year, there was a part of me that would wrestle with whether or not these students would, would grow if they'd understand and, and that they'd grasp onto this material. And, and frankly, there, were, there was a point in time, there, there would come a point in time where if there wasn't any progress at all, I just wanted them to be done. And, and may the year end and may you be off. And if you never take a science class, that's wonderful. That's fine. You know. But deep down, you know, there's part of me that, that you, st you still wanted to grow. You still wanted to learn. Appreciate it. It's nice when they can get excited about what you get excited. As believers, guess what? We're to bear the burdens of one another. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. And that's going to be that way forever. And when we see another professing believer wrestling, and maybe it doesn't even look like they're wrestling, but they're struggling through an aspect of what you deem to be worldliness that's part of this modern culture. I mean, honestly, would you just be happy if they never came back? Would that make your church experience better? I think sometimes we really think that. We just, we, okay. And sometimes we can say this with really good motives, but, but hear me, okay, and I don't want to be hypercritical. You know, sometimes we can come into the church and we say, you know what, I'm in the world all week. I should be able to come to church where I don't have to be confronted with worldliness. But guess what? The church is filled with sinners at different rates of maturity. I'm going to touch on this a little bit later, but that's a really passive way of approaching worship if you think about it. If you think about it, it's almost kind of, okay, this is what I want to get out of it, as opposed to me being a functional member. I mean, the local church is not a spectator sport, right? You have activity with other believers, which leads me to my fourth question. What kind of relationship do you have with these people? Any? So some final thoughts on application, okay? 
Tolerance does not mean that something worldly is acceptable or promoted. And here's what I mean when I say that. Paul was hardly accepting of the Corinthians' behavior. When we read verses 1 through 9, we can't say that Paul just kind of winked at him and said, yeah, I know, <laughs> you're growing, it's okay. Oh, no. And from a Christian standpoint, when we do see aspects of worldliness, modern culture, where people are growing through, because we don't perhaps immediately address it, like crack the whip and say, that's sin, and if your leaders don't do it either, that doesn't somehow mean that it's acceptable or it's promoted. And when I say acceptable, meaning it's virtuous. Okay? Each one of us, if we have the Holy Spirit within us, each one of us should be, we want the space to allow God to work on our heart. Let me use an illustration. So uh, for several years, I was youth pastor, youth director here. And uh, one of our youth uh, leaders was discipling a girl who just accepted Jesus Christ. And, and I would say the situation that I'm describing here is akin to scenario number three. Where there was a girl who had been coming to Grace and um, she'd been coming to the youth group. She made a profession of faith. But, and I don't mean to be inappropriate here, but she was dressed very provocatively each week to the point where it was quite a distraction. And mind you, she made a profession of faith and she was being discipled by one of our leaders. And so it was something that really vexed one of our youth leaders. I mean, to the point where you know, she would come up, I'm really sorry what so-and-so wore today. It's just, uh, and I'm like, it's okay. She's here, she's hearing the word. You're spending time with her, studying the word. Is she growing? Yeah, oh, absolutely, she's growing. And that's what matters, okay? So one particular week, this youth leader came to me. She said, Pastor Mike, I gotta share this. So I was really burned about so-and-so, you know, and just, I, I didn't want her to be a distraction. And she came in and, and honestly, uh, my heart just sunk because of what she was wearing. And, and I thought, we're making no progress at all. And God, why don't you change and work on her heart? And, and the girl came up to me and she said, look, Mrs. So-and-so, what do you think of what I'm wearing? And, and I honestly, you know, she's like, I honestly couldn't say anything. She said, I went through my closet and I picked out the nicest clothes I had because I wanted to wear my best to church. Now, does that mean that somehow she's Miss Modesty? Not necessarily. But... Isn't it a bit more helpful when you have an understanding and appreciation of the trajectory of where the girl's heading? And being spectators who can just simply walk by people in the hallway and make instant assessments on spiritual condition based on externals? Doesn't that, I mean, maybe help to provide some context? Now again, tolerance does not mean that something worldly is promoted. But it does mean that there must be an allowance for God to bring about the change. Does that make sense? Okay. Number two, stability is not the primary goal for a disciple-making church. Growth in Christ-likeness is. 
Okay? What do I mean by that? Stability is not the primary goal. Certainly we want stability and maturity, but I think we need to really be careful about how we define stability because guess what? If we are an evangelizing and a disciple-making church, there will always be a level of spiritual instability. Okay? Pastor Tim's example this morning of spiritual newborns, comparing them to physical newborns, there's a lot that's one for one in that comparison. And guess what? If we want to see the gospel go forward, and if we want to see souls saved, and if we want to have them identify with the believing community here at Grace Church, then there's a level of mess that we're going to have to be able to deal with. I mean, you can't have milk without manure, right? If you lived on a farm, right? If you live on a farm, you want milk. This is the first thing that came to my head, but you know. In, in, in a very real sense though, if you want growth, should they have been grown already and polished to nice clean Christians before they walk in the doors? Yeah, I was thinking about this passage and, and I was thinking about what the elders of the Corinthian church would have thought when they, or what they would have felt like when they got Paul's letter. I mean, here's the leaders of the church. Paul hasn't been there. He's heard a lot about it. And so he sends a letter to them. And they're thinking, our church is, uh, uh, wow. There's so much we need to do. There's so much that God needs to change. And the first nine sentences, or however many sentences are in the first nine verses, that's the first thing they read. What comfort that would have brought, wouldn't it? Okay. Growth in Christ-likeness. Is. And then finally, th final thought on application. With relationships comes patience. Uh, my time is short. I do want us to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I know it's a different church, Thessalonica. Same author, though. It's Paul. Same dispensation. Verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren. So he's talking to believers here. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. But there's a catch-all phrase here. Be patient with everyone. With relationships comes patience. What do we mean by that? This isn't a call to start building tactical relationships with people in our church so that we can somehow fix them. Aha, I know that person's worldly. Let's get be buddies. And now I get to tell you all the things you need to fix. I'm not saying that. But it may be that in the context of church life, you learn grace and you trust the leadership in the process of disciple making. Perhaps God has brought certain people into your life for you to get to know. And as maturing believers, we never want problems to simply go away. That comparison that I made earlier on. God has called us to encourage growth among believers, even if that means maybe not necessarily having an immediate relationship, but praying for that individual. And praying for their discipler. And telling their discipler that you're praying for them. So... Just as a, a final illustration, with this I'm done. So my daughters ride bikes, and my youngest is five, and we have a street that we drive down right near our house, 
And as she goes down the street, uh, there's a little hill. It's not a real big hill, but she goes down this hill and she loves going as fast as she can. And for me, I'm terrified. Uh, because as she goes down, you know, it's one of those bikes where the, the pedals, you know, the, 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 the hinges on the pedals are only like this long. So she's pedaling as fast as she can. She can't go to, to faster gear. And then when you just really start going fast and you try to pedal, there's no tension. So her feet goes, flies forward. And so she does this constantly. And when she does this, the bike goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, it's wobbling all over. And I'm behind, like, whoa, you know, just, just waiting for her to just wipe out. And I'm barking out, Lily, be careful. Lily, keep your feet on the pedals. Lily, slow down. Lily, da 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 And she's just having the time of her life. She's this wobbly thing. And she makes it down the hill. And here I am as crazy scared parent, wanting to be able to control it, and frankly, wanting her to ride her bike just like me. I don't wobble down there. You know, I'm pretty safe. I, I, I like going fast, but I can control my bike. She's ridden a bike now for two years. Hardly an expert. But as she's riding this bike, and I'm wanting her to ride it safely, and I'm, right, I'm wanting her to not do anything foolish or silly or maybe slow down, and, and this might be a, a silly point of comparison, but even if she doesn't do those things, and even if she wipes out, she's still my daughter. In fact, I love her that much more, and I give her that much more attention and care. I mean, the fact that she's only been riding a bike for a short period of time, I can expect her not to be very balanced, very stable. When we have Christians at varying levels of growth, there's a reality of the wobbliness that we see from our perspective that we just kind of wish would go away and just, just, you know. And if we're not careful, we stop looking at them the way that God looks at them. And we start looking at them in a way that would really just be nice and clean and really rule-centered, law-centered. And, and cleaning up the outside when God really hasn't done the change on the inside. There will be a day when Jesus comes to earth and he reigns and we're with him and we don't have to worry about this anymore. And we'll no longer have to wrestle with this sin nature. And neither will anyone else. But until that day, so long as we keep sharing the gospel with people and so long as the Lord keeps blessing with new birth, we must expect ongoing interaction with the modern culture in our church. Not from a standpoint of promoting like us as leadership saying, hey, come along, we're gonna be hip and cool and da, da, da. Not so much that, not that at all. But from the standpoint of seeing levels of influence and people in our church that frankly are less mature. And, and as believers, there's a kinship that unites us, but more importantly, there's a, a spiritual reality that needs to govern the way that we look at them. And frankly, look at ourselves. Because we certainly want others to give us the level of deference that we'd like to have. We know the wrestling match that we fight with worldliness. 
We know the things that pull us and tug on us. We know that. We fight that. We don't always look the best and play the part the best. And sometimes, honestly, when people ask us how we're doing, we let them have it. But if we're going to talk about an application of the Christian in modern culture, it really has to start with in the believing community. Okay? And, and how we relate to other believers. When we allow God to do that growth, we allow for grace, we allow for God to be the one that changes people. And in doing so, he changes us. That's the blessing. Okay, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for your loving kindness to us. Lord, it's such a balance to strike. And... It would be great to have a clean church, but no farmer would want a clean farm because there's no animals there and there's no produce. God, our church has been blessed with souls who are, are doing this at, at a great level, as I mentioned even at the beginning of the sermon, where they're walking through this and, and many times being confronted on a regular basis with, with discomfort with challenge. Lord, may parents be wise as they disciple their children, helping their children to see other saints with grace. Lord, would spouses be wise as they interact with one another so that we might build others up and not tear them down? God, would we be mindful of the levels of growth and be praying for those individuals that, frankly, just might rub us the wrong way because they're not where we think they ought to be? Lord, may we bring them to you in prayer. May you cause the change. Lord, may we build relationships and not just simply give any sense of a country club mentality. God, this will be an ongoing work of sanctification in our lives so long as we're here on this planet. And Lord, in humility, I don't foresee it getting any easier. So give us strength to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.